Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very, 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 very happy and excited to be here today because today we're interviewing a guy who has been the executive producer of one of the number one shows on television and that has lasted a long, long time, a decade. And I'm talking about Jason Raff, the executive producer of America's Got Talent or as I like to call it, grammatically incorrect reality television show. But that doesn't make any difference. Firstly, I want to thank you guys for everything. You guys have been amazing. The support is incredible. If I were to tell you the things that have happened to me recently, I don't even think you can even imagine the kinds of things that have been happening. I was in a Starbucks. A guy comes up to me. He happens to be the president of studio, says, I love the show. I know of you, and I'm looking for this thing, and I can't find it, and I was hoping you could help me with it. And because of that, several different people have been meeting this person, and it's been an amazing, fateful thing. I was in a Chipotle, if that's how you pronounce it, because Jews do not know how to pronounce certain restaurant names, only the ones that are delis. But I was there, I'm with my kids, and this guy stops me. And wonderful young man, he says, listen, I'm sorry to bother you with your kids. I've listened to every episode of your show, some of them multiple times, and I want to share something with you that you may not know because you're busy. 
I uh, reached out to you when I was living outside of L.A. I was a young writer. I didn't know where to turn, what to do. I'd been listening to your show, and I was really confused about which direction to go, how to do it. And then I listened to a podcast of yours where you said, change the pattern. Change the pattern of your life, and you'll change the pattern of your career. And I was kind of blown away. I was listening, and then he said, and I called you to ask you if you could just take a minute with me. And you called me, and you gave me advice. And I was so, so grateful that you gave me that advice. But I listened to what you had to say, and it meant a lot to me. And I worked on what I needed to do as a young writer. And I just want to thank you so much because I'm working on a show called Trip Tank, an animated show that's going to air after South Park and premiere on September 23rd. And I just want to let you know I'm so grateful because you had so much to do with me getting this gig so much to do with me coming out here, so much to do with me following my dream. And I'm very, very, very grateful. And I just walked out of there and I was just, I couldn't believe the kinds of things that are happening. And it all goes to show that when you just start something, even if you don't have an idea of what it's going to be or what you think it's going to be, the fact is, is that there's potential for things to really be impactful, not only for you personally and professionally, but for other people you touch personally and professionally. Before I get into that, I just want to thank you again also for using the Amazon banner on my website, barrycats.com slash podcast. You guys have been clicking on it, ordering things. It doesn't cost you anything. And Amazon generously donates to the Barry Cats Bar Mitzvah Irish Twin Fund. So thank you so much for doing that. I appreciate it. But what I want to get back to in terms of everything that happens with your your dreams that you go for and how you don't know what's going to happen at all. My guest today, Jason Raff, is a guy that he started in areas of news. He started working on jobs at like Dateline and the Today Show, which aren't scrub jobs, but he spent nine years in the trenches working in these jobs, gaining the skill that he needed to gain to become an executive producer, which eventually the top show in the country many, many weeks of its run. As a matter of fact, this summer, uh, you know, I remember just hanging out in June and just looking through the different trade publications, and it was getting like 10 million viewers a week. And in today's times, if you get 10 million viewers during the summer, I mean, I think the next biggest show was like an hour drama like NCIS or something like that. It means you're inspiring people, you're giving people what they want, and you're doing great things, which is what we all aspire to be. But as I sit across from Jason Raff, you know, I never know what's going to come to me. And I think about somebody who I don't get a chance to talk about that often. Somebody who I consider to be one of the few geniuses in our business. And 
that's Howard Stern. And no one can even imagine the depths and the lows that Howard Stern went through in the beginnings of his career being chastised and bullied by executives that didn't believe in what he was doing, didn't like the kind of radio he was doing. And I look at Howard as an incredible inspiration to me and to every artist out there in the world. And I'll tell you why. First of all, gutted it out completely, like spent many, many years making shitty money, trying to make an impact, but knew and believed in himself and the path that he wanted to go on and the tone that he wanted to go on. He knew what was missing in radio. He knew what he wanted to bring to radio. And when he brought it, he didn't know whether people were going to come or not, but they came. If you were to say to Howard Stern when he first started his radio job that he was going to be the most powerful guy and the king of all media and a man who makes probably, God knows, between 100 and $500 million a year, who knows how much it is anymore, I'm sure he would have said, well, I'd love that to happen. I think I'm capable of that happening, but I certainly don't know if it's going to happen. But I think what's important to note is that when Howard Stern went on America's Got Talent, it was a very, very unique move that surprised me because I really didn't think that that was the kind of move that somebody of Howard's stature should do. Now, again, I'm just one person's opinion. I just felt like Howard was the kind of guy who could be a talk show host at night and take over. But for some reason, those deals never got made, yet this deal got made. And it was confusing to me because America's Got Talent is a show that's like, it's as mainstream America as it gets. I mean, it's like a fastball right down the middle. Howard Stern is a screwball, a curveball, a, a split-fingered fastball. Howard Stern is a Roldis Chapman throwing 107 miles an hour. He's not your average pitcher pitching 90 miles an hour. Yet he was going into a show that was just mainstream, that was the antithesis of his brand, the antithesis of everything that he's fought for and represented. So before he went on the show... And I believe it was he started in 2012, and he's finishing his fourth season, which I believe is going to be his last that's just been announced. I was wondering about that, sort of putting on my manager hat. And I should have known, I should have known that you never second guess a genius, because geniuses can figure things out even when they don't even know how they're going to do it. I'll give you an example. Howard Stern loved Jackie, the joke man, Martling. Jackie was family. But Jackie had a habit of having his representatives negotiate really hard at contract time, always thinking to himself that Howard was going to be there if he went too far. 
it's like when I do a deal, I always have the trump card. If the people call the artist and say, you know, Barry's gone too far, fuck it, we're not doing this deal, I always tell the artist they always have the trump card. Oh, oh, I, I, I never told Barry to do that. I, I'm, I'm so sorry. Listen, let's just close it at what we had at the last time, and, and I'll just tell him to step away. And I'll take the bullet because I know that it always can go there. But with Jackie, it always went one step further with Howard always stepping in. And again, I'm not there on the front lines with Jackie and Howard when it happened on the show. But what I believe happened was the fact that Howard said to Jackie, look, this is it, man. I'm not, I'm not getting involved anymore. So whatever decision is going to be made, uh, I'm not going to come in anymore and, 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 and fix this. I want you to stay. I love you. It's a great deal. I think it's really fair, but I'm not getting involved anymore. And so when they made the decision, the powers that be, to cut Jackie loose, Howard didn't go back on his word. He stood by, even though he felt security with Jackie. Jackie was the joke man. He always felt like he could be fed a line, be always helpful, and he was one of the members of the team that was invaluable. But Howard stuck to his guns, and Jackie left, which opened up a whole new thing of comedians coming in and doing guest shots and, and however it was. And then Howard made the decision to hire Artie Lang, a decision that if Artie were here, he probably would say, wow, that was a risky decision. Because Artie is a guy who's gone through trials and tribulations and probably, truth be told, if he were also sitting here, and I were to say to him, are you surprised you're still alive? I probably would say that he would confirm, yes, I am surprised I'm still alive. Yet Howard hired a guy who went through so many troubles, not caring about the difficulty of his personal life, caring that he brought the funny and that he was perfect for the show. But that meant Artie Lang getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning or maybe not going to sleep, whatever it was. And Artie proved to be a wonderful addition, but again let Howard down with his personal problems that he had no control over, it appeared. And now Howard was in a position where he said to himself, do I hire somebody else? I'd love to have these comedy people. But no, this is where a genius comes in. Howard decides to switch it up and starts conducting long-form interviews on the radio with huge stars. And they're some of the most unbelievably extraordinary interviews you will ever hear. An incredible interviewer. And I don't want to get into details of what you believe, but just think of the landscape of daytime television talk show hosts and nighttime talk show hosts and think to yourself how many of them are great interviewers for a seven-minute segment, let alone a 70-minute segment. And that's the genius of Howard Stern. He changed the face of what he was doing 
hardcore fast bits here and here and instead the now if you talk to anybody about Howard Stern and they say what do you love about Howard Stern nine out of ten people don't say I love the lesbian thing here or this thing they love the interviews everybody talks about the interviews so again, he changed the pattern, changed the listening, changed how he was doing things, even though he was number one, like America's Got Talent, number one. So he goes on a number one show, but it's not his lane. It's not where he's, it's not the tone of what he does, but Howard, what does he do? He goes on the show. He doesn't become the bad guy. He doesn't become the good guy. But what he does is he navigates and figures out a way where every single person on the show knows that Howard Stern is the fucking man. You don't think for a moment that Mel B thinks that she's the star of that show now. You don't think that Nick Cannon thinks that he's the star of the show. When Howard came on the show... The show changed. The show became much more cohesive. People wanted to watch it more. He blended with all the judges seamlessly, as evidenced by the fact that he's been working with Nick, Howie, Melby, and Heidi Klum through his entire time, except for, I think, one year where it was Sharon Osbourne's last year. So not only does he come in and make everybody better like a great player does, but he also doesn't upset the apple cart. And he goes in and he changes his brand up to where he's not as offensive as he is on the radio. He has a different tone, but he still maintains the foundation of who he is as a person. And when you watch him, you love him. And you love him when he says something potentially mean. And you love him when he says something great. And that is the mark of a genius who knows how to be able to figure out those kinds of things. And knows how to stay the course when times are tough. And... I'm not sitting here across from Jason Raff and he'd probably roll his eyes if I said, oh, this guy's a genius or this guy's this or that. But what Jason Raff has proven to do is he's paid his dues. He got on a show and created an executive produced a show which slowly became like a plane taking off to one of the number one shows in the country. He's never lost his job on the show like so many executive producers have. He's never upset people in a way that have caused situations where they don't want to work with him anymore. And through it all, the consistency of the great work of Jason Raff related to the great work of Howard Stern is a lesson to all of us. And I think if you can figure out a way to have the consistency of a work ethic and the consistency of a tone of how you feel you can be within the foundation of the own fiber of your being in terms of how you want to be out in the workplace in the world. I'm telling you right now, you can look towards Jason Raff's career 
and you can look at Howard Stern's career as examples of how it can be if you can maintain that consistency. And if you can do that, let's hope that you and I have just a fraction of the careers of Jason Raff and Howard Stern. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very, very excited today. I feel like I say that every day, but I am excited because I'm here with Jason Raff, a man who a lot of claim to fame, but one of them is that the guy is one of the executive producers, one of the longest-running, most successful reality shows in the history of television. And that I'm talking about America's Got Talent, a grammatically incorrect television show that's a behemoth. And I'd be remiss if I didn't give him the proper introduction. But before I do, I want to thank you all uh, again for everything, the support, incredible. I appreciate it. It means a lot to me. I can't even tell you the emails that I've gotten. They're so incredible, and I'm so, so grateful. I have to give Jason the proper introduction, so I'd like you, Jason, to just sit back, relax, fall asleep if you have to, and someone here will wake you when the uh, introduction is all over. Jason Raff is a producer, director, and writer who specializes in reality shows and alternative programming, in addition to film production, video editing, broadcast television, and HD video. He was born in New York City and grew up in Connecticut. He attended my alma mater, Boston University. He began his career in Boston directing sporting events for local cable and producing morning television at WCVB-TV. 
Later in his career, he joined NBC Universal on the studio side and spent four years as a producer for Dateline and five years at NBC's Today Show. From 2003 to 2005, Raff helped lead the successful four-season run of Average Joe on NBC as a supervising producer for the first three seasons and co-directed the show's premiere season. In 2005, Raff helped develop, executive produce, and co-direct Three Wishes, a primetime non-scripted show hosted by Amy Grant, which helped change the lives of deserving individuals by turning their dreams into reality. And the Parents' Television Council named Three Wishes one of the best primetime shows for family viewing. He also served as co-executive producer on Average Joe, The Joe Strike Back, and most notably was also the executive producer, writer, and director of Will and Grace, Say Goodnight Gracie, a retrospective special that aired in 2006 as a companion piece to the series finale of the groundbreaking sitcom. That special was awarded a Cine Golden Eagle for outstanding production in the comedy category. Next came the Mother Load as the executive producer of America's Got Talent, where he's helped lead the show into its 10th milestone season. Around this time, Draft was executive producer and director of Clash of the Choirs in 2007, a live four-night television event produced by the BBC Worldwide and became a consulting producer on NBC's 2008 dating show, Mama's Boys, with producers Andrew Glassman and Ryan Seacrest. Additionally, he has also produced at NBC, Lifetime, and Comedy Central Network. He's the co-author of the book Tricks of the Trade, a consumer survival guide published by Dell, and he's a member of the Directors Guild of America, and he has been with America's Got Talent again for the entire run of the series. And in 2014, the Guinness Book of World Records named the show franchise the world's most successful reality TV format. The brand has been adapted for broadcast in over 58 countries, including versions across Europe, Asia, Pacific, the Middle East, Africa, and the Americas. The show's initial success in America is credited with the eventual launch of the British series and the overall global launch of the Got Talent franchise. His documented stories have won an Emmy, Edward R. Murrow Award, and a Cine Golden Eagle Award, as I said before, for the excellence in documentary production. Please welcome my guest today, a guy who I love hanging out with, I love pitching shows with, and I have an enormous amount of respect for. Please welcome Jason Raff. Wow, Barry, I've never had an intro ever, so, <laughs> <laughs> so and I have one that is so long and, and uh, made me sound very impressive. I brought back a lot of memories, too, actually, hearing all those shows I did. Thank you for such no a problem. generous introduction. It's so great to have you here. It's like, for those of you who don't know, I've been, sometimes you're, you're thrust into situations, you have clients, you're doing things, people are putting shows together, and Jason's company's putting this show together, and I've been pitching the show with him, uh, along with a wonderful client of mine, Brad Williams, who happens to be pound for pound <laughs> the funniest comedian in the world. That's because he probably weighs about 60 to 75 pounds and is three feet tall. But he's an incredible man, and it's just wonderful going out with you and seeing how you work. And I always say this with somebody who I admire, you know, oftentimes... And I was doing another podcast where it became clear that when you're a producer, you're really a salesman. 
And a lot of times I go into these rooms myself and I feel invincible. But when I'm sitting there with you, it's like I feel like the the world could end and I'd still sell the show. Right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great uh, feeling. Well, it's fun being, you know, going around with you. I mean, you are, as I said before, you, you are a legend in comedy and someone I always kind of looked up to in the clients you help foster their careers of. So it's a real it's a real thrill for me to be here. Oh, wow. This is like Sammy Davis Jr. and Carson <laughs> on the couch. This is fantastic. I don't know. And the most boring podcast ever so far. <laughs> are you kidding me? This is going to be fantastic. Just because they are all looking at you like you're painting doesn't mean anything. Right. It's all good. When I say they, there's literally... I know. Like you didn't one, say there was going to be an audience here, Barry. There is an audience as large as America's <laughs> Got Talent audition in probably like Montana somewhere. But if you don't mind, I like to go way, way back. Whatever you want to do, I'll try, do to I'll try to follow. Do yeah. you mind? So let's go back to where you grew up and what kind of lifestyle you had and what the, you know, what was it like growing up as a kid and what was your first thought in your mind of, I want to be in this entertainment business? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, although I was born in New York, I, I grew up mostly in Danbury, Connecticut, which is about an hour outside of New York City. And, you know, my... My dad was a urologist, and my grandfather was a urologist, and Jason, uh, they named me, uh, which means the healer in Greek. So I think there was a trajectory that they had planned for me into the health profession. And, uh, and you know, when I was a kid, I remember my dad took me on a tour of 30 Rock, you know, Rockefeller Center in New York where NBC was housed. And so I did this tour as a kid, and saw people doing their job there and I, like immediately it just clicked like this is what i want to do for a job how old were you uh, i had to be around 10 maybe 11 i think when we took the tour so instead of prescribing pills that are blue <laughs> yellow and different colors or looking at people's penises which would have been yes even worse yes <laughs> your dad ever come home at the dinner table and say oh boy today yeah well that was you. yes yeah whenever you, i my... saw one today the hook to the left i can't <laughs> tell you what happened but no but i will say like when i was a kid um my dad would be called to the emergency room on some kind of emergency and then when he would come back and he'd say, uh, you know, I'd say, oh, what, what happened? And then when he would say, oh, it was a freak accident, there was always some kind of good, disgusting story to follow. Like, oh, guy caught a, you know, caught a ball, baseball in his lap or went through a plate glass a window. Uh, so, yeah, he, um, he had some stories. <laughs> I remember, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm doing this because the audience is going to kill me for this. But I just, like, I have these appointments sometimes, you know, when you're, you have doctor's appointments. I had an appointment with the urologist, and I asked too many questions sometimes. <laughs> and I asked my urologist, I said, tell me a couple of the craziest things that have ever happened to you as a urologist. And I shared uh, maybe uh, this with uh, a few of the people here before you came in. Your father would know and this relates to television. Do you know what the most common what the most common phrase heard on national television is throughout every network? There's not even a there's there's not even anything that comes close to it. I no, I my brain is going to urology and the most common phrase and I cannot fathom what this is. If you have an erection that lasts more than 4 <laughs> hours, see your doctor immediately. And so I I asked uh, my urologist, I said, why do they say that? And he said, I'll tell you why they say that. 
because a lot of people, they take these pills that urologists subscribe, like uh, Viagra mm -hmm. and Cialis, and sometimes they're a little concerned, and they want that extra boost, and they take an extra one when they're not supposed to take an extra <laughs> one. And guys like me get the call, come down the emergency room immediately. There's a man here who has had an erection for more than four hours. <laughs> And I said, well, what happens if you don't get the swelling down, um, you know, within the fifth hour? <laughs> and he looked at me with this, you know, he sort of went white and he said, well, that's the story I'm going to tell you is that it's over. I said, what do you mean it's over? <laughs> it's over. <laughs> he said, it's over. Your, 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 your unit does not work anymore. Oh, my. It's done. I said, well, what do people do if that happens? Well, we have to install a pump. I said, you mean like a man before he's about to get some action is literally like doing something like he's like pumping Air up a Jordans, bicycle? Air Jordans, yeah. Air Jordans? He said, absolutely. <laughs> and he said that was his story because he was called the emergency room and a guy had, it, it hadn't been four hours. It was like he thought he was a hero. He was going to start, <laughs> he started in the morning, went through noon with his girl all the way to the afternoon. And she called the hospital because she was in a way, she's like, something's wrong here. And then he went there, but he'd have gone like 10 hours. And, and that was my urology story. <laughs> you know, there's something in these podcasts that's fantastic, which is called editing. Right. Uh, and so, good medical information, and too. Good medical information. So you went to 30 Rock. Yeah, oh, so, uh, yeah. so I went to, uh, went to 30 Rock. And yeah, I just, that, I just knew right away that that seemed like, a job in a place that I wanted to work. So, um, and ironically, also at that time, I was a huge Howard Stern fan. You know, like he was, I idolized him. I would, he was back at WNBC, which was, used to be at 30 Rock back then when, when NBC had a radio division. And uh, I used to rush home for after school and like literally record on cassettes uh, all his, uh, all his shows and listen to them and was just inspired by him and, and so it's so weird that eventually I got to got to work with him one day. But um, but yeah, he was a huge influence in my life, and so much so that um, as you probably know, when I learned that he went to Boston University, I said, "Well, that's where I'm going." You know, there was no question that that's the college I was going to go to for some reason because he worked at the radio station, um, and I wanted to go into radio at that point. And I was like, "Well, I'm just going to go there." So uh, so yeah, that that tour of Thirty Rock. Uh, was a life changer and and it took a while to get back to that building but eventually when i ended up working at nbc uh i was working out of that building don't you think that's amazing that at 10 years old you get the tour and your first gigs is working in that building yeah and i always you know when people say oh, i don't know what i want to do for my, a living or this and that you know as, as i talk to other kids or or even kids my age at that point, like I knew right away, like that's what I wanted to do. There was ever, never any question in my mind that that's what it was going to be. At that point, I, I was more interested in radio, I think because of listening to Howard. And when I was in college, I went to a TV studio and I said, oh, this is much better than radio. <laughs> and, uh, and I kind of made that, that turn. But, uh, but yeah, it was never a question. So you go to BU, you work at the radio station mm -hmm. there, and, and what kind of show do you produce at the radio station? Well, you know, I tried to, you know, for my influence on Howard, I tr first off, it was a radio station. I don't know if, 
Yeah. Was it there when you were there, WTBU? Yes, of course. I mean, but no one listened to the station. It was in the basement of Miles Standish Hall. I don't know if you recall. I listened to it because I went to Miles Standish Hall. Oh, you did? That's where I stayed. And But this radio station did not go over the airways. It got broadcast through the electrical system Yeah, it was somehow. through the electrical system of BU. And just to let people know who aren't familiar with BU, but are sort of familiar with Boston, if you've ever been, there's a building in around the Charles Gate section of Kenmore Square that looks like a mini Flatiron building. Yeah, that's right. And it used to be an old hotel called the Miles Standish Hotel, and Babe Ruth used to stay right. in Suite 801, which was the corner suite in the, in the narrower area of it. And I was an RA there. And the radio station was there. Yes, in the basement. Yeah, so not many... I mean, we wouldn't even get callers. So when I would try to interact with people, since no one was listening to actually call the station, I would just... Because we knew the prefects of the people who were at BU, the kids were there. So I would just call out at the radio station to try to actually get someone on the on the, on the the telephone so that I could actually interact with them. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't very good. I wasn't, uh, wasn't a great DJ or anything. I didn't know a lot about music, but I just, uh, I don't know, I just loved it at the time. That didn't stop me. How horrible I was, it didn't stop me from doing it. So how do you go from Boston University, being a guy who's at the radio station, going to broadcasting school, to ending up as a producer on Dateline and the Today Show? How does that happen? Yeah, when I look back on it, which I, I don't do very often, but... When I was in school, took classes and I enjoyed the classes, but there were other opportunities that that I found, you know, while we were in school. Like there was a little local news station that you could work on or I could volunteer my time on and started, I think you had to start doing the audio board. Like that was, no, camera I think might have been the worst job. Yeah. So you were put on camera on this news thing where you just point the camera at the news anchor and eventually you could move to the audio board and eventually you could be the switcher, the technical director who could switch the cameras. And then... After about a year, I worked my way up to being the director there. So it was this nightly newscast, and I was, you know, maybe a sophomore, junior in college. And so that became an obsession. Those classes were fine, but actually making television um, and having a job in it, like that was completely inspiring to me. Um, and that led its way into directing sports, which I didn't know a ton about sports. But you directing sports at BU? Or? It was for a local cable company. It was the it was UMass, the University of Massachusetts. It was a lot of their games, and it was a lot of high school football games that they would bro- broadcast on the little local uh, cable sports channel. So uh, I got involved, you know, every Saturday morning, waking up early and going to cover a football game. Um, again, first as Cameron, eventually as the director of it. So I kind of got into that part of the production of it. And then by the time I was a senior, uh, leaving my junior year, I heard about this thing at, at Channel 5, which was at that point was the ABC affiliate. And every year they would have like a fellowship. They would give, they would select one producer who could produce a program once a week on the ABC affiliate that aired on Fridays. I believe it was at 2 a.m., and it was called Night Shift, and you could do whatever you wanted to do with this hour of TV that they were giving you, and they gave you a budget, and it was just me. Like they, And they selected me, and I, I couldn't believe I had an hour. It was the best job, even to this day. It might have been the best job I ever had. Why do you think where, they selected you? I have no idea. I, maybe I'm the only one that applied. I have no idea. But I certainly was enthusiastic, and this opportunity of, of being a senior in college and getting a one hour of broadcast to fill however I chose to, um, and with money to actually spend on, like was it was. Your, what was your budget? 
I don't even remember. It was not much. It was not much. It was not much. I know that. And so tell us what your first hour well, premiere so, episode but, was. So and I had to hire a host of it. Like I had to interview people and have people come in. And ho- it was like a whole thing. So p- for the most part, the show, it was called Night Shift. And for the most part, it was for stone people and <laughs> were up at 2 o'clock on a Friday. So I, I kind of try to keep my audience in mind when I produce this. So what, what we ended up doing is I ended up, we being me, the only staff person, um, ended up focusing on student films and video ta- videos and stuff that was being made by students. Uh, there were a lot of film schools in Boston, lots of colleges, as you know, in Boston. There were animators making stuff. So I would just showcase and I would interview them. Uh, not me, but my host would, and uh, it was the first probably podcast ever. <laughs> you know, this very niche kind of thing that uh, that I put on the air, and eventually I saved enough money in my budget because I was a huge fan of comedy. You know, I tried my hand at stand up and was not a performer in Boston. Yeah, in Boston. Where and did you perform? Oh, uh, was it like Comedy play? Connection? Yeah, it was Comedy Connection, one of those places. I, I just I didn't last a day. Uh, I tried it in high school. I just didn't have the personality to be on. On a stage, I just didn't have that kind of fortitude. I, I didn't mind me, mind being behind the camera, but being in front of an audience was not my thing. So, um, but I always loved comedy, and I always uh, uh, listened to a lot of comedy uh, as a child. Huge influence uh, listening to those comedy albums back then. What were your favorites? Uh, uh, Bill Cosby was uh, had memorized at that point. You know, he was one of the few that were putting it. And George Carlin, my parents let me get these George Carlin albums when I was a kid. Uh, they were fairly liberal in that way. So the, you know, the dirty words you can't use on TV, I could still recite them today. I knew that album back and forth. So Carlin was a huge, which when you think about it, Cosby and Carlin couldn't be more different. Um, but even Howie Mandel was huge. I mean, remember he was running around putting a rubber glove on his head and yeah. like, I loved him and Gallagher like as a young child. So I just love comedy so much. So one of the, when I saved enough money, in my budget, I actually put on a comedy special of young students. We uh, auditioned a bunch of students who wanted to be comedians, and we did a little like young person's comedy show um, with an audience and stuff like that. It was a lot of fun. So that's what this, this hour of TV was that I had, and that was a huge kind of life changer. Like I learned so much in that one year. And any of the performers or your host ever go on to do anything? In my the my host ended up doing a lot of local, becoming a kind of a big figure in the local TV there. And who was that? Um, her name was Charlene Ferris, and she uh, she ended up being uh, quickly, quickly rising to be like an executive producer and stuff for the news and running the news shows. Um, and the comedians, I don't know. I have to look back on on who they. You know, there's nothing like oh, I had Stephen Wright. <laughs> like I can't. I, I don't. No names that I can think of end up hitting it big that I recall. But uh, I have to look back on those on those those three quarter inch tapes or two inch tapes or whatever they were. Well, what's fascinating is your beginnings on what you're doing now and you know putting together talent. Yeah. For the show and 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 inserting a host and finding a host to go in and the early influences of Howard. Yeah. It's uh yeah. It, and and then your your time at 30 Rock when you're 10 and then going into that it just it sort of comes full circle all the way through. So okay, so you're doing that, you got your own hour, somebody must be taking notice. You must you must in order to get the job of the Today show or Dateline, you must have sent a montage or a clips of your best episodes. Yeah, I kicked around well, I kicked around by I ended up getting a job on the local morning show in Boston from uh it was the it was the predecessor. I mean, it was on for ten years prior to my my being there, and it was like Boston was always very progressive with 
local TV. You know, they were very uh, ambitious with the shows they put on. So even before there was a Good Morning America, there was a show called Good Day Boston. Absolutely. It's something that you probably don't know about me and I've never shared with anybody on this podcast is that I was the winner of the co-host for an evening for Evening Magazine. Oh, really? Barry Nolan and Sarah Nolan. Edwards. Remember That's right. Them? Yeah, yeah. How crazy is that? Yeah, they had, they had Evening Magazine. They had Chronicle. They had so many local yeah. TV shows. So, And they also had GBH was there doing a lot of stuff on PBS that was going national. So it was a real hotbed for, for TV production and local TV production. So this morning show was, again, such a great experience in that um, it was a talk show. So you would produce live uh, you know, guests would come on selling their book or their movie or this and that. We um, had a live uh, remote truck, uh, and we had a young, at that time, a young host who would go out, and we would do just fun segments around the around Boston uh, with this live remote truck, and that was exciting to get that live experience on the road. And then in the afternoon, that same crew that did the live shots would do tape stuff, so I got to learn about shooting stuff and editing stuff. So you got every facet of television production in this morning show and it was a huge kind of as i look back on my career which i don't normally do but now that you're making me um it was a huge benefit to learning a little bit about everything live tv tape everything happened in this morning show we did comedy pieces we did serious pieces and uh so so that was uh and the people i work with um were really talented went on to kind of move to new york and do other stuff so that was a great experience, and eventually um, a lot of my friends were moving to New York because that was the next step, and, uh, and I wanted to move there and ended up, uh, ended up jumping around like to a bunch of shows. Every six months I'd be on a new show, and it'd be, it, it would end, <laughs> and uh, I'd have to find something else. And eventually I got a job at NBC on a, a news magazine type of show, and that was, that was it at NBC. It was like I got to walk into 30 Rock, and actually be an employee there. And was that Dateline or No, it was prior to Dateline. It was prior it was a it was a show that didn't last very long. I think it was originally called Prime Story and then it got turned into Now um a show called Now and then Dateline blew up that truck and everything kind of uh, everything kind of went into disarray and they merged they ended up merging the shows. So Now and all our staff went to um uh, became another night of Dateline, and and Jeff Zucker at the time uh, was uh, the producer of the show called Now, and he went back to the Today Show, and Who he eventually asked, went on to uh, yeah. be the president of the network. Exactly, and he ended up asking me to come down to the Today Show with him, so I kind of followed him down. Now, let's face it, you know Jeff Zucker, hundreds of producers walk through the door of Dateline of the Today Show, hundreds. He asked you and a select few to come with him. Yeah, two people. Yeah, me and one, one other person. I couldn't believe it. And I think that other person might be a guy who actually was an executive producer of Last Comic yeah, Standing that's for, right. for one Dave, year. Dave, yeah. David Friedman. David Friedman. Yeah. So you get that call and you know that there's all these other people who are working there. Some of them have been working there longer than you. Yeah. Some of them have put in a lot of more time than you. Some of them have more tenure than you, but you get the call. Why do you think you got the call? I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't know why. At the end, you know, I just there's something. You know, at the time, um, and today, like, I, you, there's something about Jeff. You know, that I was so loyal to him. Like, even though I didn't really know him, I mean, I worked for him, 
like there was something about him that inspired me and I just wanted to make him happy. There was something about his management style or I'd see him in the control room and just be really like look up to how he could do it and how far he came in such a little amount of time. You know, his progression back then, for those who don't know it, he was like an intern or a PA at the Olympics, and then a year later, he's executive producer at NBC. You know, it was a, it was a historical rise uh, uh, based on, you know, being very smart and uh, just uh, inspiration. So uh, I don't know, but when he asked me to come down, uh, I went right down. And I think what he f saw in me is he would come up with ideas that some people would say were kind of crazy, and then he would just kind of give them to me and just kind of have me do them. And and uh, I wanted nothing more than to kind of please him. And what was his management style? Was he a guy who you were in fear of, like, you know, any moment you could lose your job? Or was he a guy who was more empowering and calm? He was a little bit of everything. You know, he knew, he, he to me, he, to me, he could be a little bit scary. But at the same time, and I, and I look at this as I kind of manage other people, like, I just wanted to make him happy. Like, I just wanted, I was so loyal to him, and I just wanted to do a great job. So, like, he would say, great, you know, good job. And to me, that is, I mean, I've had a bunch of different kinds of managers in my life, and I'm sure you have, and, and I've always thought about how I manage other people. But there was something about it that I always wondered, how do you catch this where your employees are so loyal to you, and they just want, they'll do anything to, you know, they'll work and I was working at that time 18 hours a day doing edits overnight, you know, because that was the best editor and the best room I could get into. So I didn't mind working from midnight to 9 a.m. Um, and just to give a product that I knew was good, but I knew would also kind of make him happy. Yeah, I always think to myself, there are certain things in the business that don't cost anything. Yet it's so rare for somebody to want to give them, like... Just telling somebody, thank you, I really appreciate what you did, great job, when it is a great job, deserved, you know, and, and, and it's like a parent who, there's some parents who tell you that they love you and some that never tell you that they love you, yet every son or daughter of the parent who never says I love you will always say, well, he showed me in other ways, and every child from a parent who they say, I love you all the time, say, well, I appreciate them saying I love you rather than, you know, the action of it. And, um, you know, there's certain people's management styles that are always uh, come into question, but I always feel like it doesn't cost anything to let anybody know that they did a great job. And it doesn't uh, happen. And you're right. It doesn't happen very often. I mean, it does and, not happen very often, especially and, in, in Hollywood. And consequently, also, it doesn't cost anything to give somebody a credit on something or to give them an increase of a credit on a show if they're just asking for the credit. It's just, but people are so against moving people up and giving them credits. It's, it's just unbelievable to right. me when it doesn't cost anything. And I think, it, you know, it has a lot to do with their standing and their egos and where they are. And I never quite understood that myself, but... But let's keep going here. So you're, you you follow Jeff. You do a great job. He gives you all these kind of assignments. You deliver all the time. You're kicking ass there at the Today Show. Now, I just, you know, I don't mean to just uh, seem like I'm, I'm going at you here, but you got, you know, Dateline, which is kind of a little sensationalism 
you know, in, in journalism. Some are great stories, but some are, you know, about uh, things that are a little more like, you know, uh, entertainment-based stories. Yeah, I did a... Yeah, I went to Dateline. I was at the Today Show, um, and I went to Dateline because there was something about... What I loved about Dateline... Yeah, because I'm confused because you're at the Today Show, which is probably one of the most prestigious shows. It's basically the morning franchise, no, and I that's had a, why. And I had a great gig there. I was literally traveling around and just doing mostly tape pieces. So I was just traveling around the country and working with, I'd originally working with Brian Gumble and then with Matt Lauer, and and we would do great pieces around the uh, around the world. I mean, I traveled around the world for that. And that's what I'm saying. And then you make a decision. You know what? Let me go from the most prestigious show. <laughs> in the history of NBC's morning television franchise in the 60 years that they've been on the air. Let me go to Dateline. I don't know at that time if they were doing what they were doing today. For me, Dateline, back then, the reason why I went to Dateline was that it was... It was the most prestigious thing at NBC. In other words, you know, when there's a, there's this hierarchy of the best editors, the best edit rooms, the best crews. And if you were at Dateline, you had access to all that. And you also had access to time, you know, because why I went is you would get handed uh, a story to do and you would be doing it on your own. Maybe you'd have an AP to help you and you would go around the country and you would shoot it. You'd come back and write it. And it was up to you. You were doing I was doing these little documentaries that were an hour long. In that case, they're doing a lot of long form stuff uh, as opposed to doing at the Today Show. Six minutes would have been like a really long piece or eight minutes. Sometimes I would get. Um, so you would just be handed this little thing and say, go ahead and go do it. And you had amazing freedom to kind of travel around the country and, and tell your vision of what the story was. So there was a lot of, I did a lot of investigative stuff. I did some crime stuff. So when you were there, Dateline was, you were there when it was actually competing with 60 Minutes and it became so popular they started putting it on three, four, or five nights a week. Yeah. And so you were there when they were actually doing the real 60 minutes kind of stories as opposed to the giant ice cream cone in Medford. Yeah, no, the stories I did, I don't know, I never had, I, I, I really got into them. I did some investigations, I uh, hitting camera stuff, um, like not with uh, child molesters, like, you know, uh, I, had a, I had a really good time there. And I never meant to get into reality TV. Like, I was having a really good time at Dateline. And I certainly didn't want to be an executive producer. Like, I looked at the senior producer. I was a producer at Dateline. I looked at the senior producers at Dateline and the executive producers and said, I never want to do this. Because Why? the senior producers, their job was to stay back in the office. And you would write your script. And you would show it to them. And they would make suggestions. And then you'd go into a screening when you were about to present your work. And all the senior producers and the executive producer would get together and they would give you notes. And this seemed like the worst job ever. You know, like you don't get to go out with crews around the country and shoot stuff and then go craft it in an edit room. And that was the best part of the job. Like the worst part was going back to the office and, uh, and having to look over the, the scripts. So I had no aspirations to do anything but produce things. So no desire to have the highest credit awarded in television absolutely not absolutely not like that was not in the plan at all all right so you're at the today show you're at dateline which at the time is prestigious then you go to well yeah it, well, average joe yeah it was a little before average joe and again i don't want to bore people but you're not boring anybody because this is fascinating to see the trajectory of how you make a decision yeah. to go from you know like i said prestigious 
news programming, working with Jeff Zucker, a visionary, and then you go to Average Joe. Yeah. Well, reality TV was starting to get popular, right? You had Survivor was had just started and was kind of getting a lot of heat. And I would watch it and be like, "Kind, this is kind of this is kind of cool. It's like a social experiment, you know. It's uh, it's kind of documentary." And, you know, there were some dating bachelor had started also, and I found that was kind of interesting. So I was a little jealous. It's like, oh, they're traveling the world doing Survivor. This seems kind of fun. Um, but I had no idea how to get into that. And, uh, and I remember being, um, I remember I was, doing a, I was doing a documentary for Dateline where I was literally lived in a firehouse for about, uh, a month and a half, never left, except for if it was on a run. It was it was a little bit after 9-11 where there was a lot of focus on on uh, on firefighting and, and rescue. Not good for the social life. Yeah, it was it was not good for my brain. Like I went a little crazy. I was stuck in this firehouse. Like they were on for if you're a fireman, you were on for I think forty eight hours and you'd be gone for like three days. Well I was there every day. Never left this it was in San Francisco. And I did go a little insane. And um, anyway, I put together a documentary, which they had sent six producers all around the country to each do their own little documentary. And uh, anyway, mine was to air like fourth, I think. And they ended up canceling the series after the second one. So mine never aired. But I had put in so much time, like six months of my life. So then this opportunity came up um, through um, a guy named Stuart Krasno, who was a legendary, used to be a news producer also, and became one of the forefronts of reality TV. And he had hooked me up with this guy, Andrew Glassman. And uh, we did a, he's like, do you want to do a pilot for, uh, for an NBC reality show? And I just needed something different at that point. I said, sure, I'll give it a try. And I asked my bosses at uh, Dateline, hey, do you mind if I do this for a couple months? And they were so guilty from not airing the special <laughs> that I did that they said, no, do whatever you want. Whatever you need, go do. And we did a pilot for NBC that nothing ever happened to. But then a couple months later, they had this idea for Average Joe, which was a take on The Bachelor. It was like it was a dating show, but on, you know, with a beautiful woman. Um, but in the very first episode, she learns as they come out of the limos. We, you know, we were stealing a page right from The Bachelor. I shouldn't say steal. We were inspired by The Bachelor. And... Uh, and in out comes from these limos to greet this beautiful girl were a bunch of average shows. And that was the twist we had. And Why do you think, I just want to ask yeah. you for our audience, Tim Robbins, who's uh, won an Academy Award, he runs a theater company here called The Actors Gang. And for him, for his actors on stage, if they do a scene, and they do a scene and a role a certain way, and then another actor comes on the next night and does it the same way, he's thrilled because he believes that all actors should borrow upon all actors and to make the craft as great as it can be. But in television, when somebody makes the average show, the producers at The Bachelor are smoking cigarettes going, dirty, rotten world, those motherfuckers. <laughs> they stole our idea, and then they're trying to fucking go on there and make money off our concept. Right. You know... Why is it that people go out willingly and knowingly they're borrowing a page or pages of a book of another show right. to try to go on and be successful? How do you how do you go into work every day knowing that you're doing something that is partially a knockoff on somebody else's idea? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, what I loved about Average Joe is you take an idea and you turn it upside down. You know, you take something that's a serious romantic thing and you turn it into a comedy. But this idea, I mean, you work with it all, tons of comics and this idea of stealing material or being inspired by is a huge kind of uh, point of discussion of what is you know with creative people on that was my idea like how can you you know that's my joke so you know that you know that better than anyone i'm sure you've heard those complaints from your clients absolutely absolutely so it never bothered you no no it never you know you know you always what what bothers me is when you have an idea and you do nothing with it and then you see that idea on TV. Like that is a, that is a that is a worse feeling. You know the the show that you want to pitch. Oh, I have this show I want to pitch, and oh, but I didn't get my act together. And all of a sudden you see it being sold somewhere. You know, not that it was stolen from me. That I didn't like get my ass in gear and kind of do something with it. Now, do you mind pulling back the curtain, if you will, on reality for us, mm -hmm. especially a show like Average Joe? I think that a lot of people in the audience. Uh, believe that reality shows just happen as they happen and when they do a little research and they maybe they look and research shows like duck dynasty they look and they say i don't understand why are there 13 writers on this show right like what's happening here i thought they're just you know i thought we're just filming them on an average day of their their work so on a show like Average Joe, this is your first time in reality. And you're used to doing things on the Today Show and Dateline where if you just change one thing or fudge one thing, you're done. You're fired. Yeah, I was a journalist. Like I was a So you're a journalist. serious journalist. You you cannot change one thing. Then you get the Average Joe's and the producers with you are saying, "Hey, listen buddy, uh um, we're going to bring in these guys, but just tell them to do this. Tell this fat guy to say this. Tell this person to say this. Uh, listen, tip off the girl that something's going to happen here, but don't tip her off of this. How do you feel once you first realize that, holy shit, I'm, I'm going into fake television? Yeah, well, there was, at the time, uh, you know, I was coming from journalism, and Andrew Glassman also had been a had been with uh, a reporter for WNBC in New York, so he was also a journalist. So I think it was a more pristine time back then. Yes, things were manipulated, and you would put people in situations that they would not be in, and you would, when doing an interview, you would try to get them to go in a certain direction. But I think there was a lot less of the writing. We would come up with story beats of things we wanted to hit, but I think what I found back then. Uh, was that sometimes the reality of a situation, it was good enough. You would put a bunch of regular people in a house and you would take away TV and the internet and any kind of social interaction besides those people in the house with them. And you would quickly see, and we did it with guys and we did it with girls, you would quickly see how crazy people do go from just being stuck together. And this idea that they're going on a date was I was amazed, and so was Andrew. They would fall in love so quickly because they're stuck in a house. Wait, the men would fall the in love with the girls? The men or the, or the women, both. Because so the, the girls guys, was, so the you know, we'd done it both ways. So for the first one, it was a bunch of guys in this mansion in Palm Springs, and they would never go out. They had no access to TV, video games, anything. So the idea of going on a date with a beautiful girl, and it could be today, or it could not be that she could say no, or it could be three days from now, and they're just stuck in this house, 
we found that they fell in love or became so infatuated so quickly that there was a lot of real emotions. We didn't have to manipulate a lot, you know, back then. Uh, it just all kind of happened beyond what we could even think of. And so the dad bod was actually popular then. Yeah. The what? <laughs> the dad bod, which I've learned about. is, the, is new, It's the new thing with girls. They're not looking for the guy who has the washboard stomach or the the nice muscles or the swimmer's body. They're looking for the guy who, you know, naked looks like a bag of onions. Right. <laughs> well, in this case, they were just looking to get out of this freaking house that they were trapped in and go somewhere nice on a romantic date. And we were putting on these dates, just like in The Bachelor, dates that they could never afford to do or, you know, they were in helicopters and they were having these amazing dates. So they, I was always amazed that, uh, well, today, yes, with some some of the docu-reality shows, there are a lot of story beats that are written, but I think Andrew and I always found that the stuff that actually happens was better than stuff we could even think about. Interesting. Or come up with. Okay, so you, you do that, and you do that for four seasons. Yeah. And then you do this show um, with Amy Grant, which was an inspirational show, which was more of a show which which had more socially redeeming qualities. Yeah, it was, I knew the moment that we got the family, the War for the Best Family TV show, I knew that that was the death of the show. Like, <laughs> like I looked at Andrew Glassman, who I was working with, and said, oh, God, we're doing something way too good here. <laughs> yeah, we were traveling around these small towns, and, uh, and yeah, we, we were making these wishes come true. It was great to have the resources of NBC behind you while you actually did some pretty amazing things, and we did accomplish some amazing things on that show. Um, but uh, and we travel all around the country, the smallest towns ever, um, and it, it was a good. It was a great experience. It's television, you know. When you go out and you pitch shows, and, and I, I think the audience should know this. Uh, sometimes one of the craziest things happens is the the shows that you think probably have no shot of getting picked up and going the distance, go the distance, and then the shows that you think are going to be like the biggest hits aren't. And I'll just quickly share with you something that happened to me simultaneously. Uh, I remember we were pitching two shows simultaneously. One show was based on the ESPN Emmy Award-winning documentary where there was a, um, a mascot for a college football team that was killed by a drunk driver. And a year later at the bowl game, in front of like 80,000 people, they brought out eight people who were recipients of this person's organs. Who it, it, He changed their lives from kidney to eyes to heart, whatever. And got pitched this idea about the whole thing where we could follow a story that would be this great story from when somebody passed away to the donor, the family, back and forth until the end and when they both meet at the end, the family and the recipient of the organ, whatever it is. And George Lopez, who I don't know if a lot of people know this, during uh, his sitcom, he was actually dying, mm -hmm. but he was afraid to tell any of the producers because he was afraid he would lose the job. And he was on a list for a kidney, and he couldn't get one and finally his uh wife or ex-wife now gave him a kidney and he survived and he was going to host the show so i'm going out with a show with george lopez hosting this great feel-good situation and simultaneously uh, 
we're going out with a show about three teenage girls who are crazy in Hollywood and do crazy things called Pretty Wild. <laughs> the show with the organ donation, literally, we'd go in and pitch, and it was like somebody literally passed gas in the room every time <laughs> when we pitched it. I mean, it was like the worst reaction you could ever imagine to a show, and it was so inspirational, and people were horrified by the fact that you'd actually follow somebody and see somebody die and an organ, somebody donating their organs. Meanwhile, pretty wild, there was a bidding war between two or three networks, <laughs> and we got a 13-episode commitment from E! without ever shooting a pilot. Right. And does that happen to you all the time? Oh, well, I mean, just when I was up for America's Got Talent, I was presented two shows that uh, I could possibly work on. One was America's Got Talent, which was described as like, I mean, I watched the pilot. I got handed the pilot, which was shot in the UK, and it was, I just look back on it because it's our 10-year anniversary, so we put actually a bit of the pilot in this 10-year anniversary show that we, you know, that we just produced, um, and it was, uh, all the contestants were in the audience, there were dogs in the audience, clowns, people all dressed up, and it was like, They'd be called up from the audience. You know, come on up. You're the next contestant on America's Got Talent. What Jason's alluding to is the first incarnation of America's Got Talent, which I believe I saw clips of as well, was almost like a combination of America's Got Talent and Let's Make a Deal. Yeah, it was it's called Paula Grady's Variety Hour or something like that. Uh, and nothing ever happened in the U.K. with it. Uh, Paula Grady ended up going to ITV or something. The deal went bad. And Simon had wanted to bring... Simon. Simon Cowell, Simon sorry. Simon Cowell, thank Simon you. Cowell had wanted to bring this variety format. And ironically, I, I believe, uh, you know, he pitched this variety format to Fox because he was working at Idol at the time as a judge and he had taken off. Uh, and I, they turned him down. And so he went to NBC and NBC wanted to be in the Simon Cowell business, even though he wasn't going to be on air. Uh, they. They they bought it, so I got presented a Simon Cowell show that was this variety show that looked kind of crazy, and I didn't think it had any chance of being successful. Um, and then they also I also got um, was interviewing at the on the other side for it was called Celebrity Cooking, I think, where celebrities would come and compete and cook, which was also for NBC, and it was going to be in front of a live audience. And in my background before TV. Um, I had many different jobs, uh, lots of weird jobs. One of them was as a cook at restaurants. Um, so I was kind of gravitating towards, oh, I know a lot about cooking. But at the same time, part of my comedy routine back in the high school days was riding a unicycle and juggling uh, at the same time and riding over a ramp, which was only about... Uh, about maybe six inches uh, high. This explains why Gallagher. Yes, is in I your know list. exactly. Yeah, those, those who know Gallagher could see I was very influenced by Gallagher. So I was like, well, I could ride a unicycle. So that looks, you know, I know I have a background for America's Got Talent, but I really do like cooking and have a, you know, have a history in, in being a cook. And I, I just couldn't figure out which one to to do. And I end up, I think I didn't get the cooking show, and I end up just being on America's Got Talent, and it changed my life. You know, you talk about forks in the road and like things that happen. Well, I didn't think this thing was going to last at all. It just seemed like a crazy show. And then as I started auditioning possible contestants, I kind of started seeing it in my head. Like, this, there's nothing like this on TV. There's people who do some really weird and amazing things. And I remember as a kid watching uh, 
Real People, right? Or um, That's Incredible. Oh, Real People was with Skip Stevenson yeah. and Byron Allen. Yeah, so I remember as a kid, you would see a little bit of these kind of people doing weird things. And and so as, as I as we started casting it, it started I started seeing this is this actually could be a pretty good show. What was the second choice for the name? I don't know. You know, I think when I got there, I think it was never going to be grammatically correct. I think it was the, the day I got there, it was called America's Got Talent. And I think I might have pointed out that it's not grammatically correct and was told to be quiet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it's, you know, it's, this is what's hard to believe because Jeff Zucker, I believe, was there when you came he, with the show. He bought. Yeah, he would have bought. The show, yeah. yeah, he would have bought the show, and which has a lot to do with probably why you were blessed to be uh, involved in this show as well, at least a percentage of the reason. Yeah. So here's a guy comes from the Today Show again, the most you know journalistically correct television show, hopefully for NBC, besides the nightly news. Yes. And the big flagship show they name America's Got Talent. Yes, yeah, if I wrote that sentence at Dateline, they probably would have corrected it. The senior producers would have corrected that. <laughs> I remember when I was doing Last Comic Standing with Peter Engel and, uh, and uh, Jay Moore, and I, I, I actually shared the story with you a while back. We were getting frustrated because, first of all, how many shows in the history of television have been canceled three times to come back? How many shows <laughs> got canceled and their finale was broadcast on the internet, which I don't think... Before uh, that was even popular, yeah. That was the first time <laughs> that ever happened. Uh, how many times has a show's host resigned because it was canceled so many times? Um, but I remember we were getting frustrated also because our, our night was Tuesday, and when the NBA playoffs came along, it would just crush us in the ratings, and we... And Peter was obsessed with how this happened every summer, even though we were doing fairly well. And he thought to himself, I should make a call and we should switch our night to Wednesdays. <laughs> and we switched our night to Wednesdays. And I think it's something he still thinks about because you guys moved into Tuesdays. And from that point on, you guys were like a plane taking off. And we were on a uh, trajectory towards cancellation <laughs> and going back and cancellation and going back. Right. Yeah, I remember when we taped the first uh, series, we I think we edited together six of them, right? We had six hours, I think, all in, um, you know. And right after the first one aired, they're like, uh, can you make more of these very quickly? So we had taped over multiple days. So in the end, I think from the same tape days... Using the same material, we ended up squeezing out like 12 or 14 hours when it, the initial order was, was six. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, and back then, you know, the ratings were so different. You know, it was like 20 million people watched the premiere, you know, when I was looking back at the ratings, where now that is almost unfathomable, you know, with the decline of ratings through uh, for network TV. But, but at the time, it was crazy. And I just want to share something with you about the show that I I, <coughs> I may have said a couple of times. I, um, you know, Howard Stern, you know, there's very few people that you can call a genius in our business who are, you know, on-camera talent like that. And And what was amazing to me about the show is when Howard came on, I, I just, it's unbelievable to me that a guy in his 50s can go on a show that's a mainstream show. He can change exact everything about how he is on the radio 
yet somehow figure out to keep a part of him that people love on that show and not exhibit 90% of the other things that made you love him when you listened to him at NBC. And for that 10 or 15% of what he does, a part of his personality on the show that he shows you that is okay for that kind of show, once he went on the show, I mean, if I were another judge on the show, after that first time he was on the show, I'd be like, I'd be sort of like Judd Apatow, the way he talks about Chris Rock. When Chris Rock walks into the comedy cellar, mm -hmm. we all walk upstairs. We don't really say anything, and we just think to ourselves, there's him, and there's all of us. Right. And when Howard walked on that show, it's like, I don't care how many egos there were on that judge's panel. There's no way any of them, when they drove home, could say, you know, I was the, and I was at the top today. Yeah, well, I remember when we hired him. Uh, I mean, I couldn't have been more excited. You know, he was a, it was, I could not believe it. Like, I had suggested him as a, a judge before, but because he was talking about the show on the radio, you know, it was like, oh, my God, he's watching the show and he's talking about it. Um, but, um, but I was told, oh, there's no way, you know, there's no way this is going to happen or he's not right or this and that. Well, I mean, the money that somebody like that requires. Yeah. But at that point in the game, the money's there if you want to yeah. compete. Yeah. Well, but, the, you know, it wasn't he wasn't even doing things for money back then. He just he was someone who didn't like doing even any kind of press or anything. And to this day, he doesn't like doing that. So do you remember the first meeting you had with him? Uh, well, I remember. I had, yeah, I remember. No, again, I'm talking to my idol. You know what I mean? And and even Howie Mandel, who was a huge Howard fan, is a huge Howard fan also. I remember Howie calling me up the day the news broke, saying, "Oh my God, we get to work with Howard Stern!" Like <laughs> we were like giddy little kids. <laughs> like this was a dream come true. Now my staff, on the other hand, who didn't know much about Howard, was they were devastated. Oh my God, how could they hire this guy? He's so disgusting. You know, he he hates gays. He hates this. He hates that. He's like uh, he hates women. Like this is going to be the worst thing ever. They, no one could believe it. You know, people were coming to me just distraught. In the end, cut to six months later, and they thought he was the best judge ever. You know, after seeing him work. So, um, so I know I remember having a first conversation, which had to do with his wardrobe and what he was going to wear or something. And I remember Ralph was his, on the his, his wardrobe. Uh, you're Howard Stern. You're going to wear whatever you want to wear. Well, no, he's very He was very particular. A particular about well, that's what I'm saying. He's going to wear what he wants to right, wear. Right, but he no, but he wanted to know what he had a lot of questions. I mean, the one thing about Howard is, as spontaneous as the radio show is, he puts so much thought, so much he obsesses about everything to a point that has made him so successful that nothing is done without him putting a lot of thought to it. So even what kind of judge he was going to be, you know, he put countless hours even before he got to the first day of taping. He, I am sure, had gone through his head. What is he going to look like? How is he going to say it? What is he going to be? What is his point on doing the show? Like, where Howie, uh, and this works for Howie, just shows up and says what he's thinking and is remarkably funny and hilarious and is carefree and it's the best job he ever had and he's one of our you know, best judges I've ever worked with. Two completely different people. But Howard came into it with a plan. And with a lot of thought, and that including his wardrobe. So I remember having a conversation about the wardrobe, and then the next day hearing about this conversation on the radio, you know, him talking to his audience about this conversation with some guy 
on America's Got Talent. And a lot of it was very embellished and not quite what I said. But uh, and, but still, I was like, this is so surreal. He's talking about me on his radio show in this. So I remember that conversation. You know, it's so odd to me because I think to myself, and this just shows uh, that I clearly am not at the level of an executive producer as you are. If I'm meeting with Howard Stern on America's Got Talent and he asked the question, you know, what about the wardrobe? What kind of judge do you want me to be? I'd be like, you've had a 30-year career instinctually making all the right choices. What am I? It's like I should be wearing clown shoes right now. What am I going to say to you that could possibly have any impact on your instincts? Right. I mean, I did say, I kind of did say that, Barry. But at the same time, uh, from his point of view, he was used to doing a radio show where it was the Howard Stern show. So him stepping in where it wasn't the Howard Stern show, he was with other people. At that point, it was Sharon Osbourne and Howie, that he was one of three judges, that he had to be generous with letting other people talk. And, like, it was a... For someone who likes things to be so comfortable, he's done the same job, he's woken up the same time, you know, he's very particular about how he likes things, what he eats for lunch, this and that. This, I'm sure, was a very uncomfortable position and, uh, and situation to put him in, to be on a mainstream uh, NBC show, a network that had fired him at one point in his career. So I was just surprised he did it because I didn't even think he'd want to take himself. He had no reason to take himself outside his comfort zone. Certainly not financially. He's doing quite fine at Sirius. Certainly not professionally. Uh, you know, he has a loyal following. So I was always amazed that he did it but and that he would, he would put himself in that situation. Well, it is amazing that he did it. And I always love to see what different artists do. Because when you have more money than God, you have the largest financial deal of anybody in the history of media. I mean... And you can choose any project you want. If he wanted his own talk show, he'd have his own talk show. Absolutely. If he wants his own animated show, he's got his own animated show. If he wants a show on the air, he could probably go to a network and say, you know what, I'm funding this entire show. Let me just buy this block of time. And they'd probably let him put it on. But he, instead of all the shows out there, he decides to do yours. Why do you think he did that? I don't. You'd have to ask Don, Buck, Don Buckwald, is you know who kind of counseled him through it. I think Don Buckwald is his uh, agent, longtime for agent, his entire yeah. uh, career, and of Don Buckwald and Associates. Yeah. So, you know, he says on the radio, and he said to me originally, he just did it as a goof. I mean, how to. To you know, it was a show he enjoyed watching, and to and he had talked about do you know Idol and stuff like that. He liked those type of shows, but I think he just kind of and this idea that he would be on a family show, Howard Stern being on a family show, like I thought even he thought it was so crazy that why not do it? And uh, and I think he thought he could make a difference. I thought he thought. I say my comments, you know, I'm sitting at home to, to Beth on what I think about the act, so why not just do it in front of the audience? But it was, when you think about it, at the time, it seemed like such a crazy decision. I mean, I couldn't believe it when they told me that Howard Stern was going to do the show. I could not believe it. And in the end, you know, he definitely took the show in different directions, and uh, 
Well, that's another uh, thing about a deal like that, and and that those of you in the audience should know. And I could be sadly mistaken, but if you make a deal with Howard Stern, you don't make a deal for five episodes. You don't make a deal for six episodes. You have to guarantee somebody like that a certain number of episodes. You have to guarantee them a penalty payment of some kind if you don't go a second year. Because if he goes a f for one year and it gets canceled, it makes him look bad. And so there's all these things built in that give him protection and make Jason probably celebrate on the way home knowing that he probably has an extra two seasons instead of one. But, you know, we won't get into the deal points of it. because Yeah, uh, but I think even when he did the deal, it was going to be for one year. There was no question. He didn't even know if he would enjoy it. You know what I mean? And so I remember when he first did it, he's like, oh, give it a try and we'll see how it goes. And no one thought he was going to come back the second year. And he came back the second year. And, you know, now he's going to complete his uh, his fourth year. And he said this is he has said this is his last year. But um but I, every year I never thought he'd do it again because it is a lot of work. He complains about it all the time. But that said, he, you know, he's, he's, been, he's been a great judge, and he does enjoy doing it when he's actually doing it. Your greatest holy shit moment from America's Got Talent, the one that you would, if you were write another book, would be the highlight chapter of the book. Any crazy story or thing or performance or anything that, that uh, you know, really... Yeah, I'm so j I I would <laughs> I'm so jaded that you know it's all it you know there's people have come to my room and spread into my audition room when we're traveling around the country looking for talent and they've they've like stripped down to a speedo and smeared peanut butter all over their body and <laughs> I've seen some really weird things uh, so I'm quite jaded that way but I will say because part of my job is to travel around the country and do auditions. And you might find this, too, doing your line of work. There is nothing that holy shit moment has happened several times where someone, you know, you do audition after audition after audition, and most people are fairly mediocre. And then someone comes into your room, like, you know, Terry Fader was this ventriloquist. And I remember when he entered the room, I was like, oh, God, another ventriloquist. Like, I had seen dozens upon dozens of them, more than probably any other person that exists in America, I've probably seen more ventriloquists with their dirty puppets coming out of these horrible suitcases, uh, telling really bad jokes uh, with their lips moving. Uh, I had seen my share of the worst of the worst. So when Terry came in, he was from Texas with the suitcase, I was like, oh God. And then all of a sudden, this puppet starts singing like Etta James, as if Etta James is in the room, and you just get tingly all over your body, and you're like, holy shit. Like, and you know, oh my God, this is going to be great TV, because that has been the essence of what has made America's Got Talent and Britain's Got Talent and every other version so successful as a surprise. Someone comes in, you're not expecting much. Susan Boyle comes on stage. Terry Fader walks on stage. Jackie Ivanka, who was a young, you know opera singer uh, comes on stage and you're just they start doing their thing you're not expecting anything and your jaw just hits the floor and you're like holy crap and that is that is what makes America's Got Talent so so successful so when I travel this country and I'll be in Kansas City or whatever and someone comes into your room and they perform and you get those little goosebumps and you know that 
their life is going to change. You know, something's going to happen. Like they came into this stupid convention center in Kansas City, and in a couple months from now, they're going to be performing at Radio City Music Hall. I mean, how many clients do you have that are successful that have never performed at Radio City Music Hall, right? Many of them. Right, and these people will come and be in Kansas City or Chicago or Boise, and in literally six months, we'll be performing on live TV at Radio City Music Hall in front of 14 million people. It is crazy when you really do think about it. That is insane. It really is. And, uh, of course, Terry Fader went on to win the competition and sign a hundred Yeah, we million. gave him a million dollars, and then they... You're right, go ahead and tell them what they signed. signed a hundred million dollar deal in Las Vegas, and after that happened... America's Got Talent contracts changed slightly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they used to be, hey, you win a million dollars and congratulations, and maybe we'll make an NBC development deal with you for $50,000. And after Terry Fader got $100 million, guess what, everybody? Clauses got in the contract. Hey, we're your managers. We negotiate deals for you. We make 15% of whatever you make in the future if we choose. And that changed the face of the contracts. I mean, I think for Terry Fader, uh, I make an argument, he's the most successful reality show contestant of all time, just because, sure, there's been Carrie Underwoods and, and Kelly Clarkson, but they have record contracts and, you know, managers, agents, this and that. He, I think he had, has no manager. His brother, I think, helps him out. He has his little show, and that $100 million is, you know, is his $100 million. It's not going to a lot of places except for to Terry. And his ex-wife. And his ex-wife, that's right. Who he left for his... Quite uh, quickly, yes. Who he left quite quickly for some <laughs> stagehand or something. Oh, yeah, his, uh, yeah, the showgirl in his show. Who is a remarkable lady? Who's a remarkable lady, everybody. <laughs> of course, you'd have to be a remarkable lady for you to leave your wife who stood by you. But even he was smart. He married her. He married his, his one employee he had was, his, uh, was the one woman who was in a show, and he ended up marrying her. There you go. All right, I'd love to do a six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention somebody's name, and you tell me a story or some words that you think of them when I tell you the name or just anything that comes to mind. Okay. Matt Lauer. Matt Lauer. Uh, I think of Matt Lauer. Uh, you want one word or story or anything? Whatever comes to you. Um, well, Matt is such an inspiration in that he was working in Boston on a different uh, – station that I was working on but when you talk about careers and stuff like here was a guy who had given up on television you know you know his story he was painting you know he's going to be a he was going to be a tree surgeon tell, tell people the story yeah well he he had done some stuff in tv and but it kind of all dried up and uh he kind of gave up on it and uh he was looking for another career and I think he was interested in landscaping and he was kind of making plans to do that when all of a sudden he got a call to be, I think it was a Channel 9 back then in New York, and uh, and eventually ended up being on WNBC uh, as like a weekend anchor. Then all of a sudden he was the weekday anchor. Then next thing you know, he's reading news on the Today Show. So, so you know, it's that, that thing of never giving up. Like no matter how low things go, this industry can change so quickly. You know, so I, I think about that story when you think about when I think about him and the, the pleasure of having to get to work with him and travel around the world with him. Simon Cowell is just, you know, a genius. You know, he was a guy who was doing music R&D and then he figured out this thing about how hard it is to break an artist. 
you know, and if you can somehow get a TV show wrapped around them and break them on a TV show and then manage them, but that's not a bad uh, that's not a bad way to to make a career. You know, I think about when I'm talking to people who want to be on America's Got Talent or comics, which you know well. Like it used to be, you know, a comic would they would wait for the Tonight Show, right? They'd wait for the one chance on the Tonight Show, and that could break their career. And yet, even on America's Got Talent, I see uh, comics who have done Letterman you know, have done all the talk shows and yet they're still at a certain level. Like it doesn't change things, but yet they can come on our show and be seen by 14 million people just like that. Change Tom and Cotter's it can have, life. Yeah, Tom, Co Tom Cotter, perfect example. Well-respected, well-established comedian who was making a decent living. And we were having a hard time at that point. I think maybe because they, they preferred to be on your show at the time. They, you know, they didn't really take America's Got Talent seriously. So I think two things changed. We got Howie Mandel, um, and comics were like, okay, he'll be, you know, he has a sense of humor, unlike David Hasselhoff, like, <laughs> uh, who he replaced. Uh, Howie Mandel replaced David Hasselhoff. So we started getting a little better comedians, and then when Tom Cotter came on, came in second, all of a sudden the floodgates opened for comics, you know? And then and last comic, that was one of the years that had gotten canceled and wasn't <laughs> on. <laughs> so we had a good reprieve, and we were getting some good comics at that point. <laughs> Pierce Morgan. Pierce uh, and I have had the most friendly and the most contentious relationship ever. So the story I will tell about that, which I've never told anyone, is that we used to get into it. Well, the first year, he was so nice. He was so happy to be in America, on America's Got Talent. People started to recognize him. You know, he was, uh, he was like, so thankful. But by, you know, year four or five, he was kind of getting used to it, and he was getting a little bit more of a... Ego, and we kind of get into it a little bit. I remember having a fight with him. I don't even know what it was about, but I remember we just got into something. He was late, and I just we just started swearing at each other, like really loud. And I don't really lose my temper that much, but all of a sudden I'm in the hallway yelling, "Fuck you! No, <laughs> fuck you!" Like we're literally screaming at each other. And I look out of the corner of my eye, and there's Jeff Gaspin. And, and Jeff, Jeff Gaspin at the time was the president of the network. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, I think he was the president. He was either. I think he was the president. <laughs> he started out as the president of the reality kind of division, mm -hmm. and I think at that point he was. And, you know, I'm looking at the corner of my eye, and, and, but I'm still dealing with peers, and we end up in the elevator, and we're yelling at each other in the elevator. And the next day, you know, we, we had this relationship where we'd get very contentious. The next day, we were, we'd be buddies again, and we'd hug it out. And I was like, oh, my God, that was horrifying. Jeff Gaspin <laughs> was, like, literally two feet, and I was yelling, fuck you, and you're yelling, fuck you. He's like, no, it was great. He's like, it just shows that you're really passionate. Like, it's the best thing ever. And that gave me good insight into Piers Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> Siegfried and Roy. That was the weirdest summer I've ever spent. So um, Siegfried and Roy, uh, had uh, Roy had just had his accident uh, where he was, uh, uh, he was attacked uh, by the tiger. And he was attacked by Piers Brodson. I'm yeah. sorry, by, by Piers Morgan. And he was attacked by a tiger. And I had the opportunity to uh, spend the summer with him and Siegfried and Bernie Eumann, who was his manager, to document his recovery and do the first ever interview. Maria Shriver was the, the, the host of it. It wasn't for the news division because Bernie Eumann was kind of involved in it and it was, uh, you know, he was like one of the producers also, which you can't really do in news. Um, and I was already doing reality shows, but I get, got to spend the summer watching this guy recover from this accent and kind of tell the story and do the first interview. And it's just one of those things when you look back at your career, uh, 
that you're like, wow, God, I was there. Like, I was just telling my kids, I had totally forgotten this, but Martin Luther King, we were talking about his death, you know, his assassination. And I had, had done one of the Today Show, like the last interview with uh, James Earl Ray, <laughs> which I would kind of totally forgot about until I started thinking about it. So, you like, there's certain things when you look back and you're like, oh, my God, I spent the summer. And as a kid, I loved magic. And Siegfried and Roy were huge magicians. And so the fact that I was kind of watching him recover from a very devastating accident, it was crazy. And we put together a documentary that... Um, that was uh, was fascinating to watch for me or f to work on. Hope you don't mind me digressing here. Yes. After your interview with James Earl, Earl Ray, after your interview with James Earl Ray, did you leave the interview thinking that he pulled the trigger or he was set up? You know, I, when I had just had this memory of like, oh my God, I interviewed, like somehow I had forgotten this. And I need to look back on the, because I, I don't remember, we were doing it for the anniversary, and what I'm trying to remember, but my memory's not good about, is what he actually said. I just remember being in the prison, and it was one of the few times, first times I'd been in a prison, and I'm trying to remember if he, if he had, I just can't remember if he had actually admitted to it at that point, or he was still denying that he did it. But I just remember... I remember before the interview going into uh, uh, Memphis and going to the hotel, and just which looks exactly as it did in the pictures that I saw as a kid, and just you know those things where you feel so surreal uh, in your life that you're sitting there in the same room as as uh, as the guy who assassinated Martin Luther King. It's just one of those crazy things that you know can happen in your life where you're. It just feels like what am I doing here? Sharon Osbourne. Sharon was. <laughs> Another one who I love to death. I was always growing up, again, when I look at the people I got to work with in America's Got Talent, when I was growing up, Ozzy Osbourne was, you know, butting the head off of bats. And it was such a big thing when I was in high school. I was like, oh, my God, you know, Ozzy's in town and he's going to bite, you know. And so to actually get to work with her and to get to get to see her brilliance as she managed his career and other people's career and that she was feisty and... Uh, a little bit crazy, but in the most lovable way. Like, it's a real pleasure to get to work with her. David Hasselhoff. David, um, again, you know, you're working with an icon. I think, you know, I'm just like me, right? I'm just a guy who grew up in Connecticut, and all of a sudden you're, you're working with the Baywatch guy. You know, he's such a freaking icon, and he was a little bit crazy and out of there. But the one thing I'll say about David is there'd be a lot of dramatic times where he wouldn't leave his dressing room or something would happen, and I was always called in. And I will say, in my whole life, I haven't had much luck with, uh, with like women convincing women to do things, or, or I don't have much game. But somehow, Dave and I had this connection that I could get him out of his, <laughs> out of his dressing room and get him to do things that he didn't want to do. Like somehow, I had this power and this friendship with David that uh, was very unique. The show Will and Grace. Will and Grace, I got to spend the last maybe four to six weeks that they were taping Will and Grace. So I was doing a documentary uh, on the show that aired during their finale. So I remember walking in um, the first day and seeing James Burroughs, who was the director. The greatest television director in comedy history. Right. And again, growing up, again, it goes back to you look at your idols growing up. And when I was growing up and in college, Cheers was such a big show uh, that he was a director of, I think, all the episodes. So I remember walking onto set and just seeing and getting to watch him work was the most amazing. I just, again, what am I doing here? I cannot believe that I am here and I'm get to kind of watch him work and kind of do a documentary on him and the show and the creators of that show. It was a... 
it was a great experience to kind of be there while they were doing something that was so emotional for them, you know, their last weeks of, of doing the show and trying to capture it all. It was a great, a great experience. Princess Diana. Yeah, Princess Diana, this was an interesting one. Um, it was a documentary we, we did uh, for NBC. Uh, Andrew Morin had written a book uh, back in the day. This is before, you have to go back to before Princess Diana, uh, before the divorce and everything that was happening, but somehow this guy, Andrew Morin, had this amazing information about Princess Diana, about troubles between her and Charles and all this internal stuff, and no one could figure out how he had this source of information of all this great dirt that was happening between her and Princess Charles and how um, she was being treated by the royalty. Well, it turns out years later that she was the actual source, that she was telling a friend of hers, recording conversations on a recorder. This friend was taking, the, taking these tapes and secretly getting them out of the uh, Buckingham Palace on his little bicycle and then playing them for Andrew Morton, and Andrew Morton was, was writing about them. So years and years later, Andrew said, do you want to hear these tapes, which I got to listen to. And the thing I remember most is like, we in America, we never really knew what Princess Diana sounded like. You know, we see pictures of her. There was millions of pictures of her and the dresses and this and that. We know exactly what she looks like, but we never, as Americans, we never really got to hear her voice. And all I had was her voice. I had no video. All I had is her voice. So we did a documentary with just these tapes um, of her being very candid, and you could hear how distraught she was, how she was being, she felt she was being treated. Um, and we made like a two-hour special for NBC that, again, did remarkably well. Like 20 million people watched it. Howie Mandel. Howie, again, what a thrill. Like the comedian who I grew up watching him just have an act that was so unique back then. I remember as a kid, like, watching comics, and his act was so weird and different and uh and again to get to work with him and and to get to travel with him and uh he's just been so generous and just so fun to be with you know he's been a real inspiration to me too and the fact that i've gotten to hang out with him and have him tell me stories about being on carson for the first time and he has so many amazing stories that are just been it's i just can't believe i get to kind of hang with with him and hear hear him tell stories awesome finally ryan seacrest Ryan, I only work with a little bit, um, but uh, it was uh, we did a reality show together that was kind of his idea. So, um, but he was just so smart. He kind of knew what he wanted. He was very particular, and so when he would come into these meetings or come on set, like it was it was great to hear his point of view. Let's do one more. I'm sorry, because yeah. I want your take. Uh, besides what we talked about, yeah, <coughs> on Howard Stern, yeah, Howard. Uh, for me, dream come true. Like, how often, how many people do you get to meet who, again, I said, a guy who influenced my entire childhood. I don't think I would be where I am today without listening to Howard and how just being a radio listener influenced my life and my career path. And then to go, as you said, full circle and be able to actually work with the guy is the most unbelievable story. Like, who would have thought? You know, me in my bedroom listening to cassettes of Howard Stern. And if you had told me that, you know, whatever, 30 years later, you'd be actually talking to him and working with him and telling him what to do, like, no one would believe that story. Fantastic. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you turned it into something positive in your career. 
I think that th we talked about it actually. You know, it spending you know a good portion of my life at a firehouse, doing an amazing documentary that never aired, <laughs> except for my closest relatives. Um, that was the biggest disappointment. But because of that disappointment, it enabled me to kind of get into a whole different part of television that you know has been a life changer for me. Your proudest moment in show business. Oh God. I don't know. That's a tough one, Bear. Uh, the fact that we're, I guess, I got handed a pilot for a television show that seemed like the craziest, stupidest, you know, thing at the time that I didn't think would ever amount to anything. And then t 10 years of my life has been devoted to it, to traveling around the country, trying to find uh, people. Hundreds of thousands of auditions I've done uh, in my 10 years there. Like, I guess the fact that this show lasted 10 years and it's still going strong, I guess that has to be the proudest moment. Awesome. What advice do you have for the young, talented person or young person with the dollar and a dream all over this country and the world that believes they have the talent to get to the next level and to have the kind of career that some of the people that you've mentioned who you've broken on America's Got Talent, what advice do you have for them but secondly, what advice do you have for the young, maybe kid in college at the radio station or wherever he is who doesn't really know what he thinks he knows what he wants to do, but he doesn't know how to take the path to get to the next level and to have the kind of career that you've had? Yeah, I feel kind of silly giving advice but because uh, I feel like I've been so lucky in my career. But Lucky? I yeah, a little bit of luck, but I think the one thing I'll say, and the one thing I always tried to do is, even when I was an intern, was just do the best freaking job you can do. You know, just do the best job you can do. It doesn't matter if they're telling you to staple a bunch of things together. Just don't fuck it up, you know? Because um, so many people do fuck it up. And I, I just quickly realized that just by getting things stapled in the right order and neatly put back on their desk and without any trouble or them asking twice, got you noticed and from that point you know whether it was stapling papers and then it was hey could you just help me write this thing or give it a shot and you just do the best freaking job you can do and I always found that just hard work has worked for me you know I am not the most social guy I'm not a networker uh, I've heard names like your name before but I've never gone oh I gotta meet that guy I never met you at a party because I don't go to parties I'm a very introverted kind of guy and then and the same way when you were asking about Jeff Zucker, why did he pick you? I have no idea. I, but I think he saw that I was just a hard worker and that I could make him look good. And what about for the talent? For talent, I guess, I don't know, believe in, your, believe in yourself. Uh, and just because someone like me says no doesn't mean in an audition room, doesn't mean you're not going to embarrass me years later, which is my biggest fear that uh, I've, someone's come to my audition room and I, I passed on them. And... Uh, and next thing you know, they're going to be the biggest recording, uh, you know, star ever or comedian or whatever. I, I know this is weird and I, I normally end right here, but I just want to ask you this. In the 10 years of the show, has there ever been anybody who came into the audition room and you saw them and you passed on them and another show took them and they went the distance and were in the finals of a show or something? Uh, it, it, ha it happens. Uh most of the people that I can think of, the guy who just came in, uh, did he win Idol or came in? He won Idol, was in a band uh, that was on AGT that Howard actually loved, 
but they didn't make it through to the kind of the next round. But Howard actually said, there's something about you I really like, and he ended up winning Idol. But um, there's been acts uh, that have gone through uh, the um, uh, America's Got Talent and didn't make it to the end. Jabberwockies, uh, who've done quite well in Vegas. J uh, Jessica Sanchez was a young singer who did quite well on Idol. Um, so I don't think I've passed on too many people so far that made, but that is my biggest fear, you know? You don't want them ending up on The Voice and winning or, or Idol or anywhere else. You know, you want to believe that you can find the talent and put them on TV. Awesome. Jason Raff, Jesus Christ, you thought you were going to be boring. Well, I still think I was a little boring. You but were not boring. <laughs> I didn't see one yawn out here in the audience at all. I was afraid to look at the audience. <laughs> no, really, this was fantastic. I hope you enjoy This is your first podcast, right? It, yeah, it's my first uh, yeah, real podcast where I'm actually talking about myself. I've talked about the show a lot and tried to get people to come on, but I've certainly never talked about me for this long to anyone ever. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's going to be very inspiring to the audience, and I'm very grateful you came. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Barry. It's been a pleasure. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. And put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.